boasting by grace alone. Do you consider yourself wise? The scripture says, even a fool, if he's silent, he appears to be wise, right? Nobody answered, so I do not know. You see, the wisdom of God is reflect in your boasting. If you boast in God, you're wise. If you boast in anything else, you're full. How's that for the beginning? And the Bible tells us that our wisdom derives from above, and this wisdom appears to the world as the most outrageous stupidity. And in a sense, we are the proclaimers of the foolishness to the world because God appears to be full to the world. I like how Calvin, when he started his institution of Institutes of the Christian Religion, the very first chapter, the very first sentence in the chapter, he writes this. Our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists entirely of two parts. The knowledge of God and ourselves. This is it. If you know things about God in the proper way, and you understand yourself in the light of God, you're wise. But boasting is something that we do. Like, it is so natural to us. We don't have to push ourselves to boast. If we like something, if we achieve something, we boast. We like to, for people to see what we have accomplished. We boast of our new shoes, new car, new house, new remodeling in our old house, our dog, our food, our vacations, where we places where we went. We boast even if we didn't do anything directly, we boast in our children, something that they did, and we put them on the pedestal. You know, when my kids were little, they were boast about everything. You know, little, you know, son would come and say, well, daddy, here's what I draw. Here's the picture of you, right? And he wants me to praise him. And they, they boasted about everything, from the pictures to the poop in the toilet, what they did. You know, they said, come and see. We boast about everything. We want people to appreciate us. We want people to recognize us. We want to be praised. It is because we feel pretty good about ourselves. Even us here today, some of you may catch thinking like, praise God for me that this church have me, that I'm in this ministry. I'm not sure what would they do without me, right? But the Bible uh, discourages the bad bragging and encourages good bragging. Go to, uh, with me to Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where we read the passage. And you'll see that in this passage, there is encouragement in verse 28 to verse 29. He says, do not brag, do not brag, do not boast before God. 
This is a bad boasting. Because when we boast in ourselves, God don't get his glory. And then in verse 31, there's an encouragement to boast. Right? He says, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boasts in the Lord. So I'm here to want, to, want you to, dis, to be discouraged in some points and be encouraged to boast in the Lord. Let's read the passage. Studying verse 26 says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. And the base thing of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boasts in the Lord. As I said, Paul is discouraging us to boast. For instance, in Jude 1.16, we read this. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil devices, desire. They boast about themselves and flatter others to their own advantages. God is discouraging that kind of boasting. Second Timothy 3, Paul says that in the last days, realize that the difficult times will come. That men will be lovers of selves, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant. This is what we have. But God is encouraging us to boast in him. God is encouraging us to boast in what we have in him. I like how Spurgeon said, he said, you will never exaggerate when you speak good things of God. <laughs> you just can't do it. It is not possible to do so. Try, dear brethren, and boast in the Lord. So my main point that I want to come across from this pulpit to your hearts is that the deeper you understand the need of grace, the greater is your boasting in the Lord. The deeper you understand how much grace do you need for salvation, for sanctification, for redemption, the, the greater is your praise and boasting in the Lord. And if I flip it around, on the other hand, if we do not see ourselves boasting in God, what does it mean? It means that we don't understand how much grace do we receive from him. So I want to make it simply this, uh, this uh, sermon in two points. Number one, consider grace for sinners and then consider grace for saints. Consider grace for sinners so that you may boast in God, that you walk out from here and you would tell to the whole world and say, my God is good. My God is great. And instead of praising yourself, and if you want to check your heart, what are you particularly boasting about, go to your Instagram page. Go to my Instagram page, and you'll see that there are about 10 posts 
Some of you posting everything, you know, what you eat and where you go and everything, just like the barrage of news coming out and you brag about everything. I brag less, but I also brag about things that are very dear to me. I brag about my son's wedding, brag about, brag about my, my, my uh, grandchild and stuff like that. But you could see, what are you bragging about, really? What are you praising, really? What are you filled with? What is the joy of your heart that you put it on display to everyone to see? And Paul says, look, the motivation for boasting starts with your understanding of your calling. Look with me, verse 26 to 27, it says. For consider your calling, brethren. Notice that he doesn't say, brothers, let's boast the Lord. Why don't you boast in the Lord? Why don't you do more for the Lord? Why don't you sacrifice yourself? No, he's renewing our mind, and he said, transform your mind and go back and see. Look at your calling. Just sit. Don't do anything. Just sit and think. That's what he says. Consider. Word blepo, meaning look. Look carefully. Remember and think about. This is what we did with communion. We remembered what he did for us. Paul is calling us to think. For some of us, it's hard to think. We want to do things. That's why many Christians, they don't read anything. There's no time to think. We're just goers. We're doers. But he said, consider. Consider your calling. Think the thoughts. One of my favorite theologians and preachers, Sinclair Ferguson, he has a famous question when he asks, asks in counseling session, he asked this question. He said, what do you think about when there's nothing to think about? When you're not pressed by any things that you need to do, what are you thinking about when you're not, when there's nothing to think about? And your mind could drift to your, to your wife, to your house, to your children and stuff. And those are supposedly be good. And this is where your mind occupied. But Paul is saying, consider your calling brethren. In 2 Thessalonians, he says, we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by God, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through the sanctification by the spirit and faith in truth. Consider your calling the emphasis is not on how you react to God, how you believed, what did you do, and how you repent, and your testimony. That's not what he's after. He said, consider God's work in your heart. Consider his calling of you. The emphasis on calling itself. And when God called you, he had you in mind. This is what we do. right? When I called upon my wife to follow me for the rest of my life, I thought hard and, you know, and, and, and long. Whom should I call? And I suppose if you want to get married, those who are not, you're not just scrolling through your Facebook profile and book and then the, face, uh, uh, the, the, the females and pictures and say, so, well, I'm just going to call this lady. Right? You, you think long and hard whom you're going to call and whom you're going to put your affections. Who are you going to call into your Intimacy. And God called us into his intimate relationship. And he thought about it. And he placed you in his heart. But it's interesting, when we call about, upon people and we want them to come into our relationship, 
we're usually called the best people. You know, when you choose your wife, you choose the best wife, at least in your mind. When you choose people to play in your team, let's say volleyball team, you know, we try to be humble and say, well, let's pick this girl, let's pick this, you know. But in your heart, I know what you're thinking. I want to win. And because I want to win, I need the best players. We choose churches this way. We don't go to the bad church with a bad theology to kind of change. We choose the best thing that's natural. But when God chooses people, but when God chooses people, he chose you. (laughs) And he chose me. And he chose Corinthians. He says, consider the calling, brethren, and look at the category of who are called. Look at the category. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong and the base thing of the world that are despised, God has chosen. The things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are. You come with this resume to God. And say, so, well, I'm actually, you know, not wise at all. I'm fool, right? I'm not strong. I'm not influential. I'm just very weak. I'm not noble. I'm, I'm, bunch, I'm nobody. I, I don't even, like, exist. Why don't you choose me? You know, I like how one commentator said, he said, if God needed man's wisdom and glory, then why did he ever call you? There are not many people in the Corinthian church that noble and worthy and, and wise, but God saved them. And this is what God does in the history. I'll just give you a couple of illustrations. Consider Abraham. God has promised Abraham three things. He had promised him great nation, great name, and great piece of land property. To get those things, he had no qualification whatsoever. He was a nobody from place Ur, right? Idolater. He had wife who could not bear children, and he had no army. And God said, exactly. I'm going to do that through you, for you, so that you will glory me. Consider Gideon. When he went on, on war with Midians, Midians were 130,000 against them. And so he gathered 32,000 of people, and God said, no, 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 that's too many. Because if you win, you will say that this is our strategy. This is the military strategy, how we outsmarted the Medians. And he sent 22,000 away. And God said, no, no, that's still too much. Because if you win, you will say that this is our bravery and our geniusness. This is how we win. And he said, well, I'm going to pick dog-licking men. 300 of them. Just they don't even know how to drink, basically. I'm going to pick them and win through those men. And he did. I mean, how foolish it from the, from the wise standpoint of, of, of the world. Consider Jesus. When he was hanging on a cross, how did he look to people? Was he looking smart and wise and powerful and noble? Certainly not powerful, Strong and mighty, he looked weak, pathetic, and disgusting. People may feel 
They felt for him many things. Some felt disappointment as Jesus betrayed their expectations. Some felt the disgust of they, uh, they saw that God was angry at Jesus and he deserved for what he did. Some people felt compassion to the poor man, Mary, mother of Jesus, and other women who were following. Jesus wept and were in great distress, but no one, no one was proud of Jesus. And no one was boasting, standing by the cross and said, well, this is what is wisdom look like. This is how wisdom look like. This is the power. This is the strength. This is the amazing act. No one except his father. His father boasted. And his father praised. His father was really moved. See, God works differently than we normally do. He's working outside of our parameters. He's working outside of our wisdom. He's working through what seems foolish to us. But God always does what he does. He takes a nobody and bring grace and glory through them. So God called nothing special. He said not many wise. In Corinth, Corinth there's a bunch of people who are there. Uh, they were just slaves. There were not many educated people. Not many Edison. Not many Nikola Teslas. Not many you know, Ansem of contemporary, not many of Martin Luther's there. They were just a bunch of nobodies that you don't even know who were there, right? We don't even know their names. We know a few, but the rest of it, they just were common folks. And he said, not many. I mean, you think God chose you because you were smart enough? And it's kind of an insult, like when he said, not many of you wise and educated. It's one thing to say, like, uh, you know, to your friend and say, look, uh, I thought you were smarter than that. That's one thing. But to say you have nothing in your brain, like you have, you're fool, that's different. That's kind of an insult. And Paul, that's what Paul is after. He said, well, you have to understand that you are the lower of the low, and you have no education in God's wisdom, and God still chose you. Not many mighty. Mighty means influential people. It's not just mighty, strong, but influential people that have influence, wielding the power. They usually held high offices, politicians, scientists, doctors, that people are wielded the influence. And he said, no, I mean, you're just common folks. You, you don't wield influence to nobody. You have like five followers, you know, on Facebook. What's that? Not many noble. Not many could say that I have a great genealogy. Yes, I'm poor. I'm not educated, but at least I have something to show. I'm connected to the people of the past, the great kings. But that would be not true because he said not many of you noble. And I assume this is the same thing for us, right? Who finished Harvard here? Who's connected to Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth here? No? Rockefellers? So this is who we are. We're a bunch of nobodies that God chose. Not because of you, but because of him. But Paul says, not many. And you would say, well, well yeah, not many. But there were some. There were some who were, and therefore, for sure, there were some. There were Stephanus, household of Stephanus, as Sosthenes and Crispus, and Gaius and the Rastus that are named here, and they were kind of influential and rich people. But when you compare it to the, to, the, to the wisdom of God, Paul said, look, 
I put this all, what I have, and I consider it as to be as a garbage because this fleshly things are not impressive to God. And when we understand the category that God chose, we understand also that it was his choice. Because it says in verse 27 and 28, three times it says, God has chosen. God has chosen. God has chosen. Are we still doubting of, of, of election, of God's choice? You know, look at yourself and at your life. What do you have to impress God? In Ephesians 1, it says that, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. When you did absolutely nothing, good or bad, he has chose you. He chose you when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. God doesn't throw any punches here. He said, well, this is who you are. It's not impressive whatsoever, but I chose you. And so therefore, when you boast at any point of your life before salvation, while you've been saved and after, you boast in me alone because there's nothing to boast about before me. There's no partiality with God. Romans 2.11 says, and I like how KJV says in this particular case, it says, for there is no respect of persons with God. <laughs> he doesn't respect you because you're something. It's not where his respect comes from. You see, this news, it doesn't sit well with us, doesn't it? It doesn't sit well with people, with humanity. The news that says that you are nothing doesn't sit well with humans. The message that tells us that we are created in the image of God, and it was our fault that we have lost the paradise, doesn't sit well with us. The message that tells us that you have no ability to impress God doesn't sit well with us. The message that tells us that you need grace at all times doesn't sit well with us. The gospel that is preached to us that we need savior before we being saved, while we being saved, and after we being saved in heaven doesn't sit well with humanity. Do you know that you, your need for Jesus is gonna be always there? The need for grace always will be there. You would need Jesus in heaven. It's not like we need Jesus before our salvation and now we're on our own. We need Jesus, we need grace today. And it's not like when we go to heaven, we're gonna be Jesus, we're on the same page. We would know we're here because of pure grace. And you have chosen me. You have chosen me. And I cannot answer this question, why? Why have you chosen the weak things of the world? And the answer, to shame the strong. Jesus tells a parable in Luke 14 about the insignificant people who appeared to be at the prominent spots in the kingdom. <laughs> when, the, when the owner of the household, he had his, his son, you know, prepared the marriage for him and people didn't want to come, remember that? And, and they had all the excuses. And then he said to his servants, he says, then the head of the households became angry and said to his slaves, 
Go at once into the streets and lanes of the city and bring here, this is the category, the poor and crippled and blind and lame. They would appreciate. Blind who could not see will appreciate. The lame who could not walk, they were appreciate. The poor who did not have nothing, they were appreciate. And the cripple who could not run, they will appreciate my banquet for them. And when the room was still available, he said, go into the highways along the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. Go to the insignificant people who has bragging about nothing but of me and bring them down. God does so by his own power so that he could put shame every other power because there is no other power besides God. How counterintuitive this message is to us. How was it counterintuitive and countercultural to the Corinthians? Whose culture looked up to the demigods like Achilles, Hercules, and they want to be like them, strong and mighty. Young men of Corinth want to be strong. They want to be wise. How about today? What are we driving people as pastors? What are we driving people as parents? Where to? Are we driving them to the wisdom of this world or are we driving them to Christ and Christ alone? What are we telling them? Do you hear the statement that says like heaven helps those who help themselves? I mean, partially we believe in this, aren't we? Heaven helps those who help themselves. This is ancient Greece wisdom. But the gospel says you can't. Therefore, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do. For what the law could not do. For what the flesh could not do through law. The weak as it was through flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sins, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. What are you bragging about? About your ability to sanctify yourself? What are you bragging about? That you're adding something to the perfectness of Christ? You can't do that, so then quit bragging about yourself. Chosen the base thing and despise things, the world of the world to nullify the things that are. This is what Jesus does. Coming in into your life and saves you. And you know what he expects? He expects us to really, really thank him. He expects us to really understand and appreciate grace and expect us to tell about this grace to everyone that we see without shame even though you would look like a fool to tell people, look, I, I, am, I am nobody. I didn't do anything good. In fact, I was so bad and so evil. But God has saved me. Look at my God. And do it in such a way that when you tell about your testimony, that you don't put the spotlight upon yourself and say, well, this is who I, I was and this is who I became and it's all about you now. But to put God on the spotlight and say, well, my God is good. 
and awesome and glorious and kind who gives eternal life for those who do not earn it. I like this hymn, Thomas Hazling. You will recognize it. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to, the, to thee for dress, helpless, look for thee for grace. Foul to the fount fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. That's why, motivated by this grace, psalmist says, I will bless the Lord at all times. I will brag about my God at all times. His praise shall continue to be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice it. This is what God's rejoicing. Kevin read this passage. It says, do not brag about your wisdom. Do not brag about your riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. Knows me what? That I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness and justice and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things. The wisdom of God makes us brag about God and God likes it. You know, you have to know God in order to brag about him. You have to know him. It's not enough just to read in the pages of scripture. I say, well, if you know, you want to know things about God, you read the word. But then you need to see him in the body. You need to see him working in the experience, in the church. And then you read your word and you come to church when you see embodied God here. How he works, how he forgives, how he, how he loves you. And you have to know this uh, intuitively. You have to know it inside of your heart. You know, it's like, it's like having a grandchild. Those who have grandchildren, they know what I'm talking about here. Like, those who don't have grandchildren, right? You, you may hear about grandchildren, right? That they may come. You may see them in others' people. You may touch them, right? But they don't touch you as much. But when you experience that you have a grandchild, that experience never go back, it just grows on. You would seek new experiences. It's totally different. And you don't believe me now, those who don't have children, grandchildren. But you will see. And the same thing about God, when you met God, when you taste him, when you taste this grace, everything else tastes really rubbish. Everything else tastes really bitter and not sweet. It's not good, but when you taste God and you hear him here and there, and when you meet him in your life, in your depression, in your lowest point of your life, in your highest point of your life, you can't miss God, and you can't miss grace, and you boast about him and him alone. So this is about boasting in God, considering grace for sinners. And you say, well, this is what I experienced. I did that. But the second point that he has here, verse 30 to 31, 
It's kind of point, uh, pointing us to the direction of considering grace for saints. Like, you're holy now. You're cold. Now you're in different category. You are in the church of God. You're a child of God. And somehow, in this category, we grow dull. People often ask me this question. How do I motivate myself to do things for God? Why am I not motivated, not motivated to read his word? Why am I not motivated to, do, to sacrifice myself for God? And the only answer that I could give is because you are not really in love with God, what he did for you. You don't really appreciate the grace. There's a great equivalent. Like there's a great relation between how you much you understand who God is and what he has done for you and what you're going to do. And instead of just pointing yourself to what I could do for God, go and consider what he has done for you. This is the motivating factor. That's the only thing that will push you to do anything for God. The remind yourself, the renewing your mind, the transforming of your mind will put you when you will sacrifice your body as a living sacrifice for him, Romans 12 says. But look for us, we could praise him. Because in verse 20, 30, he says, in salvation, it says, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. You're in that category, but by his doing. Look who's doing all of these things. Look who's given us security in God. God does. God does. He says, but by his doing. Sometimes we miss that. Sometimes we miss that, that it's by his doing, it's not by his in our doing. It's completely his doing. He has chosen you, he has called you, but by his doing, Christ became for us. There's a great security in Christ because he became for us and we are in Christ. Do you see that? We are in Christ. Many of you saw horrifying videos of tsunami that devastated Thailand in 2004. And there was one particular city, Banda Akeh, where the powerful earthquake was almost epicenter and hit first. The rolling of water took 100,000 men, women, and children in matters of, of minutes. There is no safe place on that beach, on that, in that city. There was no safe place. When you're on the category of the wrath of God, the only safest place is in Jesus Christ, and we come to him, and that's what he says. But by his doing, he has done everything for you, and he placed you in the safest place in Christ Jesus. Who actually became for you all of these things? Wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Everything is from God. Let's look at what we have in Christ. He did it. He chose us. He called us. He placed us in Christ. And look what he has become for us. And I wanted to challenge you to think really, is that how you view Christ in your own life? Because that's going to affect your personal holiness. Is that how you view Christ? Like, if, is he your wisdom, really? Does he have all the plans of your salvation? The plans including saving you before the foundation of the world and just giving you to the Father until the end. And this wisdom is consistent three things here. 
The wisdom of God is that God became for us righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Now, we won't spend a lot of time on righteousness because we know, we have no question about this. Like, I am right before God is because I'm not right, but he is right, and he paid for me, and I'm dressed in his righteousness. That's clear. This is the Reformed theology. It is actually the abomination for Catholic Church that we say so, because Catholic Church promotes that you have to participate in your righteousness so that you earn right standing before God. And the security of salvation is really, really the, the most abominable doctrine and reform for the Catholic Church. But we understand that, right? When we say that righteousness of God, we know it's not our righteousness, it's God's righteousness. And though I'm not righteous at daily, you know, in a daily basis, I know that that's how he views me. I know that I'm standing right and I know that he will accept me because of the righteousness of Christ. We have that. But look at the, and we could boast in that. We could boast like <laughs> freely, right? I could say, people say, well, you're a hypocrite. I mean, why, why you do these things when you call yourself Christian? I said, well, because yeah, I'm, I'm trying, but it doesn't matter in a sense because Christ got me covered. By the way, this Christ is so awesome. He was perfect and he will accept me as I am and he makes me perfect in God's eyes and you boast before him. You could boast in your righteousness, right? You could freely boast, say, well, God has saved me because of Christ. But the second word here that Christ became for us, wisdom, righteousness, and what's there? Sanctification. To kind of put you in a hot spot a little bit, hot seat. If you could brag about your righteousness in standing before God, can you boast of your sanctification? And all of a sudden, here's the problem, right? All of a sudden, we start thinking about like, like Catholic things. Really, if I look at my life, I really have, you know, not really much to show. But we already forgot the first part of the sentence where he says, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. And he became for us. It's not you. It is not about you. It's about Christ who became your sanctification. He is sanctified you. And people say, well, yes, I understand. This is a positional this is a positional. But I, I doubt that you, you, when you say these phrases, this is a positional sanctification, and this is the practical sanctification, that this makes sense in your mind. I doubt it. Like, what does it mean? What does it mean that he calls you holy? He calls you saint, but you ain't? Is that what it means? He calls you holy by name, but you're really not holy? He calls you holy and sanctified in your nature, new nature, but you're really not? What is the double thinking? Why are we so foggy and confused all of a sudden? Why don't you brag about Christ? He said that he called me holy, he treats me as holy, and he will lead me to perfection. And I have nothing to add to that. In exactly the same manner, like I have nothing to add to my justification. 
I have nothing to add to my sanctification. The only reason why I want to be holy is because it's gratitude to him and I want to show him how much I value him. I don't want to impress him with my sanctification. That's not my goal. My goal is to cling to Christ, to understand him, and to know him that he is that kind of God who's compassionate and merciful and graceful. And boast in that, and I'll tell you what happens. That deep understanding of your grace, of grace of him for you, will 100% lead to holy life. You might not believe me, and you might try different gimmicks, but I, I want to warn you today, nothing else works. Nothing else works. You're going to waste your time trying to put yourself in that program, in that system, in that line of thinking, but unless you are so soaked in God, nobody's going to move you an inch to your holiness. In 1 Corinthians, here, verses 8 and 9, look with me. It says, Christ, who will also confirm you to the end. Christ, who will also confirm you to the end. And it says, if you are trying to help him. Oh, it doesn't say so. Who will also confirm you to the end, blameless. If you try to be blamed, no. In the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. My point is this, the only way to progress in your practical sanctification, it is to realize that you're perfect in Christ and you have nothing to add to that. It's when you're moved to do good things from the desire to praise him and boast in him. And I tell you what happens, the spirit of God in your heart will move you beyond every imagination which you have planned for your life to be holy. And it would be qualitatively different experience in different service. And people will feel it. That comes not out of sheer obedience, it comes from the heart of gratitude for what he has done for me. That's what Paul told in in Romans 12. He said, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, That's the urge, that's the motivation, that's the only motivation to present your body and living sacrifice to him. By renewing and transforming your mind about what he has done for you, that is all. You say, but that is just simple. But that's the wisdom. This is the only wisdom that we have. And finally, he said, at the same chain, God became in Christ for us wisdom, which is righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. He will redeem you. Here's the final thing that he has promised. Something that he has done for you, something that he's doing with with you, sanctifying you, and something that he will do, redeem you. Final redemption, he will call you to himself and to his presence because of his grace. And that is it. The deeper we understand the need for grace is the greater are boasting in the Lord by grace alone.
in conclusion. So what does it mean? Here's now what question. So what do we do? <laughs> Boast. <laughs> Boast in the Lord. Ask your, your son, ask your daughter, ask your spouse often. Can you boast in the Lord? Can you bless his name? Why? Let him tell you about God. You know, it's interesting that the bragging comes, as I said before, from the things that we cherish in love the most. I brag about my children because I love them. When you love God, you will brag about him. You would, you would put him on, on, on a pedestal. And if you cut the essence of Christian faith, you will know that when God, when you brag about God, God delights in it. This is what he likes. He delights in the deepest, most satisfying human experience of God. You know, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It comes from the chief end of God. God is glorifying his son and enjoying him forever. That's what he does. That's what he, the, the end purpose of God. He's glorifying his son and enjoying him forever. So God is most glorified when you enjoy him to the point that you brag about him. That changes everything. That changes how you speak. That changes how you live. That changes how you evangelize. You would tell people about your God, about Christ and his awesomeness. Because this is why God created us for. He built us to boast in God. He built us and made us and saved us so that we give him all credit. He helps us so that we can rely on his power and magnify his glory. Here's the whole point of the passage. The reason why you are nothing the reason why God chose you, the reason why no man could boast is in God. It's not that we should be silent and just be quiet, but that we can boast about the Lord and not ourselves. This is the most urgent command in the scripture. This is kind of the highest end that Paul says, boast in the Lord. Boast in God. How are we doing on that? How much your heart is moved by the true gospel? How much you put reliance on yourself? How much do you really value God? How much do you really experience him? How much do you encourage other people about your relationship with your God? How much you put him on display and not yourself? How much do you brag? It says, so that just as it written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Father, we thank you for allowing us to come into your presence that you have saved us. People out of the category that should not be saved, that should not be honored with your presence. People that are transformed, not in their 
personal holiness so much that we impress you. For when you find us, when you found us, we were not so much impressive. You didn't chose us because we are impressive before you. You didn't chose us because we have done anything. Everything was from you. Your calling, your chosen, choosing, your faith, it is gift of God. The repentance was the gift of God. The redemption is the gift of God. The sanctification is the gift of God. And so there's nothing left in us to really boast about ourselves. And it's only true and only right to say that by Christ alone, through grace alone, because that is the only wisdom that we're saved before our holy God. And your name be blessed. You're a good God. Amen.